Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 51. I'm going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 19. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father, the joy that um, Sarah and I feel in being with this precious group of people is just such a small picture of the joy that you have when You call your people into your presence. And yet, as we come, if we come with honesty, we come knowing that we have broken your law, that we've sinned against you and against our neighbor. And if there is really any sense of self-knowledge at all, we would come cowering. And yet, Lord, you welcome us. You draw us in with joy and gladness because you call us your children. Because when you see us, you don't see the sin that we see. You see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, that's our hope this morning. That's the mission and the vision and the message that this church was founded upon. And Lord, that's going to be the thing that we look toward on the last day when we stand before you with empty hands looking only to Jesus 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sorry about that. <clears throat> if you uh, know me at all, you're not surprised. Uh, we are so happy uh, to be here. Uh, we had initially planned this visit to coincide with uh, seeing uh, Joyce Dilworth as well, who is a very precious friend to our family. And Joyce decided to go home to Jesus before we could get here. And so we're so grateful to, uh, to still be here and for Sarah to come. And uh, Drew and Allie uh, send their greetings as well. Uh, Drew texted me just as the service began to start talking about uh, some challenges he's going to have today flying home, uh, back to a college in Ohio, uh, some flight delays, and Allie is a junior in high school and driving all around, and they're both just growing up faster than, than we can even imagine. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to have continued to walk alongside this church uh, with Robert and Dan first, but now also with Sam, uh, who I've been able to get to know uh, over these last few weeks, and am looking forward to his ministry here among you. This morning, I want us to look at Psalm 51, and I want to, I want to begin with a story. It's a story about when I was a young teenager. And like all young teenagers, I was hungry, all right? Anybody got a, a parent, parents of any 13-year-olds around here? You know what, what I'm talking about. I was starving. My parents, my folks, were at work that day. So I decided that I was going to go ahead and make a coffee cake. You guys ever have coffee cake? You got, okay, coffee cake, we were biscuit people. And so that box of Bisquick, that had a recipe on the side for how to make a coffee cake. So I pulled out the, the box of Bisquick, I got all the recipes together, and I began to pull together this coffee cake. Now, first, I put the Bisquick itself into the bowl, and then I mixed in some salt, and then I put in the egg, and then I put in the milk, and I poured it all in this big glass dish. And I stuck it, put it in, well, before I put it in the oven, you, with coffee cake, you've got to put the, the topping on it. So that topping, that brown sugar and the butter and the cinnamon, and it all starts kind of melting in. You're starting to get hungry, aren't you? Okay. So I put it in the oven, 18 to 22 minutes, and I pulled it out, and it was beautiful. Golden brown, the top was just this caramel goodness that I couldn't wait to bite into. I cut a big slab of it, and I got some butter, and I just slathered it with butter. And then I got a big glass of milk, and I, I sat down at the kitchen table, and I took an enormous bite of this coffee cake, and I nearly threw up. It was terrible. I didn't know what... What's wrong? It, it looked amazing. It, it smelled amazing. But something was desperately wrong with it. So when my mom got home later that day, I was trying to tell her about this culinary disaster that I had and trying to explain and how I couldn't understand what went wrong. So she got a piece of the coffee cake and she took a bite and she just burst out laughing. Well, first she had to spit out what she had put into her mouth and then she burst out laughing. I was missing an ingredient. Can you guess what it was? Sugar, yes. In fact, instead of the two tablespoons of sugar the recipe called for, 
I put in two tablespoons of salts. I think we're missing some ingredients in our lives, in our life. There's something wrong. Something is off. Something tastes bad in my life, in your life, in our culture, in our world. And I want us to think about the missing ingredients of sin and forgiveness. Way back in 1973, a psychologist by the name of Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin. And there's really not a more apt title to describe American culture. A gunman opens fire at a school, and our cultural commentators stutter, they stammer as they try to explain what's happening. Nation is set against nation. Our church in Texas right now has a number of refugees from the Central African Republic of the Congo. There's genocide that their families have suffered. They get calls in the middle of the night as their family members are running from one village to another trying to escape people who are set on murdering them. We look around our world and we see environmental catastrophe. We see systemic injustice. What's wrong with this world? What's what's going wrong with this world? I think the missing ingredient is sin. But as soon as a Christian says that, we risk being misunderstood. We risk being dismissed, perhaps even persecuted by our unbelieving friends and neighbors. We can't take for granted anymore that Christian language, that Christian ideas, that Christian practices and morals are intelligible to our neighbors, to our friends, to contemporary people. In fact, the church's normal speech about sin probably sounds immoral to most of the people you know. Who made you a judge, they might tell you. Are you perfect? They'd be right to ask. Why can't you accept people as they are? Why would you use your religion to coerce a set of behaviors out of other people? Have you been asked those questions? Some version of that doubt hitting you? How do we answer? How do we help people around us taste and see that something is terribly, terribly wrong? I think Psalm 51 is the answer. Because here, David diagnoses not somebody else's sin problem. He diagnoses his own sin problem. Now, if you know the story of Psalm 51, you might be surprised that not once does David mention the specific sins for which he is guilty. You don't hear him utter the name Bathsheba in Psalm 51, but it was Bathsheba that he had used his royal power against. When a king comes to a woman and says, I want you, that is as close as you can get to rape. She didn't have any choice in that matter. And yet, you don't have David lamenting 
his sexual sin in Psalm 51. You don't read the name Uriah in this chapter. Uriah, of course, was Bathsheba's husband. Maybe one of the things you don't know is that Uriah was also one of David's closest friends. He was one of the mighty men in David's life. That band of brothers that when David was on the run from King Saul, Uriah was one of those that surrounded David, that protected David, that once went and risked his life just to give David a a drink of water. And yet he was the one that David had sent to die on the front lines of war so that he could hide his sin with Bathsheba because she was pregnant. Uriah's name is not in Psalm 51. In fact, if you have your Bibles, not just what's printed for you in the bulletin, but if you have your Bibles, you probably have a little bit of a a, a superscription at the top of the chapter. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That was added by a later editor. That was added by people as they collected the psalms together. Did David forget his sin? No. This isn't an oversight of David. David isn't going to lament a particular sin. He is lamenting sin as a condition that is common to every single person that has ever lived. This is why he says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. From conception on, he was sinful. His whole being is sinful. He prays in verse 7 that God would purge him with hyssop. Hyssop is one of those interesting Bible words. We first read about it back in the book of Exodus. When Israel was about to be released from their bondage in in Egypt. And God was going to send the angel of death to touch every house where the firstborn lived. His people were told to take the blood of the lamb and to dip this plant, this hyssop plant, into that blood and to paint their doorposts with it so the angel of death would pass over their houses and spare them. It's also referenced in Numbers chapter 19 where the high priest would use hyssop to sprinkle water that was mixed with the ashes of a red heifer. And he would take that water and he would sprinkle it on the people of God. Why? Because he was cleansing them, ritually cleansing them from their sin. It's also used when someone is sick with leprosy. The high priest would cleanse them with this hyssop. David is telling God, like, I know it's my entire self that is sinful, not just these specific choices that I've made that have hurt other people that have transgressed your law, but it's me. I'm sinful. In verse 10, he says that his heart needs a deep cleanse so that his affections as a whole, the the entire direction of his life are changed. See, he's not merely pleading for forgiveness. He longs for transformation. And that's really a key thing. 
we all know that we do things that are wrong. Even our non-Christian friends and family know that they do wrong things. But the Christian longs for transformation. Not just escape from the consequences of bad actions, but to be transformed from the inside out to be really and personally who God says they are. Before we are sinners by our actions, we are sinful in our person. And that's the missing ingredient that David provides for us in Psalm 51. And I think that that's the missing ingredient in our national conversations about evil. Before sin is something that we do, we have to put the mirror up and see that sin is something that we are. You and I have been corrupted by original sin. As soon as we are born, we bear the guilt of our father Adam. No part of us is left untouched. We are guilty in thought word, and deed. Why can't you, despite all of your resolutions to do better, ever seem to make good on it? Why can't you, even when you see the damage it does to other people, choose to do something different? It's because of who you are. It's because of what's true about you. It's your deepest place. Sin is at the root of every personal problem, of every family problem, of every social problem. And all of our attempts to fix these problems without using this word sin, without using this doctrine of sin, without understanding the nature of sin, all of those attempts are bound to yield only half solutions Our politicians can do some things better. Your unbelieving parents or grandparents or neighbors can make your community better. We can lurch towards some marginal improvements in our lives, but until we come face to face with the reality of sin, we're never going to find the true solution. But here as Christians, I think we have to be really careful Because I know that I have a temptation to stand back, to stand apart from somebody that maybe doesn't confess the same faith, to look at my unbelieving friends and family and be quick to point out the sins that they need to confess, as if I have somehow been put into a position where I am called by God to identify everyone else's sin. But folks, we were not called to be the church lady. All right? Saturday Night Live, Dana Carvey. That's not your calling. That's not the church's calling. We're not called to wag our fingers at the world around us. We must identify the sin in our own lives. And then if we are to speak any word, any word at all to the world around us, it's the second missing ingredient. 
It's the word of forgiveness. I am shocked. Psalm 51 is such a well-known psalm. We, we see it all the time. But I am shocked every time I come to it at the boldness, the daring of David's prayer. You notice this at the early verses? He makes demands on God. Have mercy on me, he says in verse 1. Wash me, cleanse me, verse 2. Purge me, verse 7. Hide your face. Blot out my transgressions, verse 9. Create, renew within me, verse 10. Deliver me, verse 14. What gives him such confidence to call on God? What gives him such boldness to pray? Because it's obvious that he knows what his real problem is. It's obvious that he has finally come to terms with his sin. And yet he turns with God with clarity and boldness and daring. How? Well, he knows that despite the damage that has been done, the damage that his sin has done to Bathsheba's family, the, the, the damage that his son has done to his own family, the damage that his sin has created within the kingdom of Israel, ultimately he realizes that his transgression, verse 4, is against God. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You might say, well, Eric... <laughs> Adultery and murder are hardly private sins. How then can David say that it's only against God that he sinned? It's because whether we sin against ourselves or whether we sin against our neighbors, all sin is ultimately treason. All sin is ultimately flouting God's law. We were made to be in perfect communion with God. We were made to serve as God's creatures. All the other creatures of the world somehow have managed to live their lives doing the things that God calls them to do. The ant that is busy in your yard, the fish that is swimming in the stream, they continue to be who God created them to be. It's you and I that shake our fists at our creator and say, I want something different. I want to do something different. David's repentance acknowledges that important fact. Against you and you only have I sinned. But with equal clarity, he knows that God alone is the only one who can save him. Uriah's family can't save David anymore. Bathsheba could forgive David, but she can't save David. Only God can save him. The one that he has transgressed, the one that he has rebelled against, he's the one that David looks to for salvation. Why? We'll go back to verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He is the God of covenant faithfulness. See, Israel knew their entire history 
had been one of rebelling against God and God welcoming them back and rebelling against God and God welcoming them back. Maybe that's a history that you can own too. Knowing the truth about God and then walking away. Resolving to follow after him and then finding yourself in a pigsty in some faraway country. What gives you the confidence to go back home? It's because he's the God of steadfast love. He is faithful even when we are faithless, Paul will say in 2 Timothy. In verse 14, David calls out to the God of his salvation. God comes to Israel's rescue again and again, and now David knows that he must be rescued by God. You see, instead of pride and arrogance, instead of the imposition of his will by his royal power, David humbly acknowledges his true need of God's saving work. I need God to save me. Now, some of you might say, well, that seems very convenient. In the words of the English poet W.H. Auden, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Really, the world is admirably arranged. But you know, of course, that forgiveness is not a necessary corollary to sin. You know that, right? I mean, there are plenty of people in the world today who are very happy not to forgive the sins that have been committed against them. Maybe there are some folks even in this room today that won't forgive, that relish in their not forgiving other people's sins that have been committed against them. And when we think about God, God would be absolutely just to leave us in our sins. We know the rules. We don't stumble into sin every once in a while. More often than not, with clear-eyed vision and absolute choice, we choose to violate God's law. God could walk away and say, okay, you made your bed, now sleep in it. Deal with the consequences of your actions. But instead, God has freely chosen to make forgiveness part of his work in the world. David knew this because like every other little boy in Israel, David had been circumcised when he was eight days old. That wasn't a medical procedure back then. It wasn't a, a cultural procedure. It was a religious ritual. God carved into his body the promise that he would always be his God. It was a promise first given to Abraham. And the the sign was given to Abraham to help him remember that promise when Abraham sinned. It was a promise, if you remember the stories from Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, it was a promise that God would put his own life on the line. That he would be faithful even to death. That God himself would suffer death and destruction so his people would be saved. David was reminded every day 
of that promise. Folks, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are also reminded of that same promise, not through the sign of circumcision, but through the sign of baptism. Because in that sign, we are told that God's dedication to you would lead to a day on a hill outside the city gates of Jerusalem when God's own blood would drain on a cross. It's a demonstration that he would not hold your sins against you. That he will suffer death and destruction himself to rescue you. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that our sinful selves were buried by baptism into the death of Christ. And just as Jesus has been raised again in newness of life, Paul tells us that we, though marked in baptism by Christ's death, we must consider ourselves alive to God dead to sin, and alive in Christ Jesus. See, forgiveness actually costs something. If you've ever had to forgive a terrible sin against you, that maybe a spouse has committed or a parent has committed against you, if you ever had to look at somebody that hurt you, that changed your life, and said, I forgive you, you know that it cost you something. It costs God something too. Sometimes the things that cost us the most, we hold on to. We don't want to give them away. We don't want to share the thing that is most valuable to us. But guys, God's a big spender when it comes to forgiveness. He doesn't hold tightly to forgiveness. He is a profligate God who seems to waste his grace on the least deserving. I don't know about you, but if I were to bet on you, if you were to bet on me, I don't think we'd break even. I think all of us are going to be voted most likely to continue to fail. But that means that the forgiveness we have received now needs to be the word of grace that we offer to other people. In the same way that God freely gives his forgiveness to us, will you freely give your forgiveness to others? Will that be your word, the word of the church, the word of this church to those who come stumbling into your doors, into your lives, holding a life that has come apart, not knowing what to make of it. Let me ask, are you just as often to speak, are you as quick to speak of forgiveness as you are of sin? Are you as quick to forgive others as you would want or need that forgiveness yourself? Do you recognize that having been the recipient of God's forgiveness, 
you are now responsible to extend that same forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. If you are quick to find sin, but not quick to extend forgiveness, you are missing a key ingredient. And your life will taste bitter. The only way that we will become a forgiving people is if, like David, we have been brought to the painful realization of the greatness of our sin, the gravity of our offense against God. I don't want to assume that everyone here knows that. I don't want to assume that everyone here buys what I'm selling. Maybe you're not sure about these ideas of sin and forgiveness. Are they just a holdover from a a weird religion that no longer exercises much influence in the world today? Something that a family member has once told you about, a friend? But let me ask you, when you stare in bewilderment at your life and ask yourself, why do I do this? When you stare in bewilderment to the world around you and say, I don't, I don't understand. Is it ever going to be better? Can things ever change? When you're trying to make sense of the world, God invites you to take the words of Psalm 51 and to make them your words. Even if you don't completely understand everything that surrounds these words, to make them your words and say, have mercy on me. Restore to me. To not stand far apart, but instead to own this as a confession maybe that you're still trying to understand as a prayer of belief. When you do, you're suddenly opened to the reality of your life and the reality of the world around you. Guys, if you are Christians this morning, I want to end with this. Over the course of your life, God will bring people into it who will sometimes acknowledge their sin to you, but it's going to be weird. They're going to look at you kind of with a side eye. They want to see if you're safe first. Are you going to give them salt? Or will you give them sugar? They're going to come to you and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to say something. They, they maybe won't use the language of sin. Maybe they're not religious. Maybe they don't understand what the Bible says. But we're all born with an innate understanding of the law of God. And so people will be brought into your life and they will acknowledge something that they've done. They'll acknowledge a regret that they have. A sorrow that they carry with them. A shame that they're too embarrassed even to name. They're going to offer up their life like a coffee cake to you. They say something's wrong. I don't know what it is. Help me make sense 
of where my life is today. Give them the missing ingredients. Take them to Psalm 51 so that David's words can be their words. And then join with them in your own confession of sin. Don't you dare stand apart from them with your arms folded saying, well, finally, you're coming to terms with your problems. No, acknowledge that you too are a great sinner. Share your own story of redemption. And then with tears mixed with joy, tell them how the Lamb of God took away your sin and brought you into right relationship with your God. And then together, look with faith to Jesus. Worship the God of your salvation the one who tasted the bitterness of death so that we might know the sweetness of life. Let's pray. Lord, we long for the day when we no longer have to confess our sins. But I acknowledge that it's not because I I'm eager for the day of transformation. More often, it's just because I'm so tired of saying the same thing over and over again. I'm so embarrassed to bring the same sins to you again and again. I long to be free of this identity. And yet, Father, there is a strange mercy that you afford to us when we bring our sins to you because we are enabled to see again with clarity and vision, with joy, the work that you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Today I pray that that work would be on full display for everyone here. For those who have walked with Christ for a long time, still find their eyes, their ears, their hearts drawn after other gods. For those who stand on the outside of the kingdom who don't know really what they think about Jesus. Oh God, may we all bend the knee as those who deserve nothing but your wrath, but who receive nothing but your grace. Because of Jesus' death for us, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.